Good morning, everyone. Today we'll continue in a series we are calling Reality Remastered, where we take a past series that has been really formative in the life of our church and remaster them by teaching one Sunday on the topic and then do a series of podcasts on it throughout the week. Well, today we're going to conclude our series by going back to a series we did a couple of years ago in the book of Exodus called Deliverance, where we looked at how God saves and how God delivers, still very relevant. If you have a Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 1. I will read all of chapter 1 and just 10 verses into chapter 2, and then I'll pray. Exodus chapter 1. These are the, the, the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, with the, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, uh, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. And they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the Lord was filled with them. The land, sorry, was filled with them. Then the new king, whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave this country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses uh, as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives whose names were Sepharah and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered, Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. When Pharaoh gave, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born to you must be thrown into the Nile, but every girl let live. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, and then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, 
take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, inside of this amazing text that has shaped imaginations over the centuries, we pray that it would shape a new imagination, a new people around how you deliver, around how we get involved in proper justice and how we have compassion and how we actually see you working like on the margins and at a street grassroots level. And Lord, ultimately, we want to be your people that are involved in what you're doing. And so give us eyes to see, eyes of faith, Lord, and make us a people that are bound together with the imagination of what you're capable and what you've, what you're capable of and what you've done in the past. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The book of Exodus is the meta-narrative of hope. To those who have lived oppressed, enslaved, or subjugated, it's the story of divine power intervening in history in defense of the powerless. It's, it's a narrative that has inspired many throughout the centuries, those who have fought oppression in the name of freedom and began the long journey across the wilderness in search of true liberation. In the 17th century, it inspired the English Puritans to battle against a domineering king. This story was on the hearts of the Pilgrim Fathers as they set sail across the Atlantic in search of a new world. The image of the Exodus was used when in 1776, the founders drew their designs for the great seal of the United States. You have the eagle, which carried Israel on eagle's wing, which God carried Israel on eagle's wings, and the cloud above the eagle and glory beams and all of that. All of that is from the Exodus. And when African-Americans sang of freedom, they sang, go down Moses, way down in Egypt land, tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. And on April 3rd, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a sermon in a church in Memphis, Tennessee. At the end of this address, he referred to the last day of Moses' life when the man who had led his people to freedom was taken by God to the top of a mountain from which he could see in the distance the land that he was not destined to enter himself. And MLK said that day, I just want to do God's will And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. That night was the last night of his life. The next day he would be assassinated. See, no story has been more influential in shaping the imagination of liberty and deliverance than the Exodus that what happened once can happen again for those who look to God in faith. And I would say, we need another Exodus moment, a moment when God intervenes and starts to work out true salvation, real deliverance and authentic confrontation of the powers that oppress all of us. So what I would like to do this morning is I would like to steep our imagination in the opening scenes of Exodus so that it saturates our consciousness and informs the way we see the beauty of God's justice and how that shapes the way we get involved into justice ourselves as allies. To do that, 
we have to plunge our mind into the world of Exodus, which when it opens up is a world of danger, brutality, and depression. We can't be guilty of romanticizing the Bible here. It's scary. Exodus chapter one is scary. There's this new king, the Pharaoh, who comes to power and does not honor the old policy that the other king had with the Hebrew people, who are Hebrew people at this time were famine refugees from Israel. These refugees are being fruitful and multiplying and out of an irrational fear of this Hebrew ethnic minority, the Pharaoh in the name of national security is justifying their slavery and eventually statewide genocide. The world of Exodus is ultimately about the use and the misuse of power. It places before us the risks of inherent, risks inherent in power, that power can be used to oppress, enslave, and ultimately to kill. And what Pharaoh proposes at the beginning of Exodus is that he enacts a brutalizing public policy that seeks to oppress kill and strike fear in the hearts of the Hebrews by killing all their baby boys. But it's important to understand that the text is telling us what this text is telling us about Pharaoh's motivation. Pharaoh's motivation is not hatred here. He doesn't hate the Hebrew people. That's not how the text reads. Pharaoh is not driven by hate, but by politics. Look at verse 10. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. This is not hatred. These are political motives. And as such, the Exodus narrative is not a simple story of good versus evil. It's actually a critique of the politics of power, empire, and hierarchical societies that divide populations into free beings and slaves, into those who have the opportunity and those who are born into a system where there is not freedom of opportunity. And what Pharaoh does with his politics is create a program that is corporate, systemic operation that has at its disposal enormous technical capacities that relies on immense ideological authority, thus generating actions that become policy. In other words, Pharaoh uses his power to create a system in his own country that when people dehumanize, oppress, enslave, or kill Hebrews, they are being good citizens that are acting in the best interest of the country. Now, of course, there are overtones here of the, way, of the ways people have oppressed and, hit, and have been oppressed throughout our history. Even today, in our country, we see ways in which politics and policies are used to do something very similar, which is why to return to what I said at the beginning, we must steep our imagination into the text of the Bible. I know it takes more effort than sound bites and streaming services available to us, but church, listen, we need the imagination of the scriptures. David Brooks, a cultural critic and cultural intellectual, in his book, The Second Mountain, talks about how, how his journey to faith 
um, happened and how when he grew up in Hebrew school, he was made to study the Torah. And when he was young, he said, he said when he, I thought of all the Torah teachings or the, the teachings of the, the, what we would call the Old Testament, even that the stories to him as a kid were interesting and epic. And then as he became a young adult, he found the stories of the Bible to be great wisdom. So it was like great wisdom literature. But he says, as he's aged and, he's, and, he, and as he's come to faith, he says this, he writes, quote, I think what changed in the most incremental, boring way possible is that at some point I had the sensation that these stories are not fabricated tales happening to other possibly fictional people. They are the underlying shape of reality. They are renditions of the reoccurring patterns of life. They are the scripts we repeat. We use the biblical stories to understand our dimension of aliveness. There, if there are no overarching stories, then life is meaningless. Life does not feel meaningless. These stories provide in their simple yet endlessly complex ways a living script. They provide the horizon of meaning in which we live our lives, not just our individual lives, but our lives together. These stories describe a great moral drama, which is not an individual drama, but a shared drama. We are still a part of this drama, as Jaber Crow put it, created and being created still. I read that as a, I read that right now as a transition into what do we do then? This is our story. This is the story of politics and power, no matter who's had it throughout the, the world history. This is a story as it repeats itself over and over and over again. Power in any form seems to oppress a certain people group. We live in this story today in America. I know slavery is abolished. I understand that. But it still works out in our systems. Or let me just say this better. What do we learn from this living script in Exodus of what happens when people live in a society where there's oppression and systematic injustice? It, it, it happens. We're living in this right now, kind of all over. Now, of course, our world is not as extreme as Genesis 1 or Exodus 1 or the antebellum South. I think we, could all, we can all agree there. But we are still in need of a liberation that involves us in what God is up to. Because power and oppression and demonizing is a script that is playing out in front of us and coming from us at all sides, the left and the right. And to join in what God is doing right now in our cultural moment, we as followers of Jesus must ask, how does God save? How does God deliver? According to this text, what is God up to? How does God save? Well, before we get to Moses, which of course is a central figure in the drama of Exodus, the emphasis for salvation, the salvation of God, are actually on the roles of six women. And four of them act as allies, without whom there would never be any Moses. And the first two women we meet are the midwives, Sifra and Pua whom Pharaoh pulls aside and says to them, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that it's a baby boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. 
But this is what they do instead. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh and said, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. Now, here's the thing. We don't know the background or the ethnicity of these midwives. The text makes it ambiguous. And through, throughout Jewish history, it keeps these women ambiguous. Now, there have been great suggestions in Hebraic writings that these, these women were Egyptians since it doesn't seem realistic for Pharaoh to expect Hebrew midwives to murder their own people's children. So, but the, 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 Torah is, the Torah's ambiguity on this point is actually very deliberate. See, what God is doing in the whole of Exodus is justice. He's enacting his justice against power. And he's showing the, he's showing the world that he is not a God isolated to Egypt or Israel. He's the God of the universe, right? That's the kind the plagues were about. But to set that whole story up, he uses these women who could have been Egyptians as allies. Now, how? Now, we do not know which party, people, race, or ethnicity or nationality, Sifra and Pura, belonged because their particular form of moral courage actually transcends nationality and race. This is the point of the Torah. This is the point why it, it kind of leaves it ambiguous. What they do actually transcends nationality and transcends race, transcends sides. See, they were being asked to commit a crime against humanity and they refused. They could not simply say, we're just following orders here. That is not allowed. These women became allies of Hebrew moms who were stuck in an impossible situation where to have a child in that culture meant your son would face slavery or death. They would not participate in these crimes and at risk of themselves and possibly losing everything they had, they stood with the Hebrews, stood for the Hebrews, and in a way stood in front of these Hebrew women willing to risk their own bodies to protect theirs. See, sometimes what it means to be an ally is to transfer the benefits of your privilege and even your authority to those who lack it. To be an ally is a verb, it's an action. It requires action. It requires that we do something. It's embodied in the New Testament teaching where John says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. What this text in Exodus is teaching is that without the participation and action of these women, without their allyship, there would be no Moses. Do you get that? Martin Luther King said, the ultimate tragedy is not the oppression and cruelty by bad people, but the silence over that by the good people. See, the tragedy here would have been the complicity and the silence of these midwives. That would have been the real tragedy since they were the one carrying out the genocide. What we're seeing play out in this story is the overthrow of power by a grassroots movement of women who carry compassion and actually carry the real power on the street level to bring about justice. 
The irony of the story is that the power is not found in the courts of Pharaoh, but in the compassion of humanity on the streets and found in these women. Now there's another interesting feature in the story, and that is the fact that God is not mentioned as a character or an agent in the plot of this story in the first two chapters. There's no doubt, this is what Walter Brueggemann says. Walter Brueggemann says in his commentary on this, um, there is no doubt that God is present, but quite below the surface of the rhetoric. However, the narrator has wrought a powerful interface between the hiddenness of God and the daring visibility of women. So the question is, how is God at work? And the answer is these midwives who act in civil disobedience by choosing the sanctity of life. Now we know what happens next. Moses is born and his mother hides him, but after three months, it says in verse three, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. See, we always think things are changed by raw power. That's the neo-Marxist narrative we're seeing playing out in the news feeds, and it's happening from both the left and the right right now, by the way. We're all, both sides are guilty of it. But to believe that things are only changed by raw power would miss out on the hidden surprise of God's power for life and the faithful women strong enough to withstand genocide. We're invited here to imagine how one baby born overrides the brutalizing fear of Pharaoh. And his mother, who has had to make the hardest decision and entrust her baby to God in a way that seems impossible at first. Now, how is that? What does she do? She puts him on the river that all the Hebrew babies were drowned in. Don't miss that. She puts him on the river that the babies were drowned in. Moses floats on the river that was intended for his death. This is how God saves as well. Through the valley of the shadow of death, through sometimes the darkest times in human history, through all of the chaos, through viruses and, and mob upheavals. He saves through this stuff, not around it, through it. Verse five, then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it the daughter of Pharaoh who is commanding genocide in his kingdom comes to the river to bathe and she finds the baby. Don't move too fast on this narrative. It's supposed to make you afraid. If you've ever seen that movie, Get Out. It's like that last scene when the sirens are pulling up and you start to freak out. You know what this means. You know what's going to happen next and your heart sinks. He's done. End of the movie. This is over with. The same thing here. The baby goes down the river and is spotted by the enemy, Pharaoh's daughter. And your heart sinks. And you think to yourself, he's as good as dead. But that doesn't happen. The strange salvation story continues. Verse six, she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. 
Now, you know what happens next. Moses' sister asked if she would like to find a Hebrew slave to be the child's wet nurse. And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, of course, go. And Moses' sister goes and gets her mom, which is Moses' mom, and it's a crazy story. But here's the thing. This is one of the most unexpected heroes of the Hebrew Bible. Without her, the whole story of Exodus would have been different. She is not an Israelite. She had nothing to gain and everything to lose. I'm talking about Pharaoh's daughter. And it seems from this text that she had no doubt, she made no hesitation. It was Pharaoh who who afflicted the children of Israel. It was another member of his own family who saved the child of hope. Pharaoh's very own daughter did this. And it says in verse six that when she saw the child, she had pity on him, where the word is compassion. Again, we find another biblical trait of allyship, compassion. See, it's not enough that our justice has passion. There's a lot of passion right now. Our justice must bear the human face of compassion. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, it is the women who have compassion and justice without compassion is not justice. If it is It is as if the Torah were telling us that Moses, the supreme embodiment of the passion for justice, is not enough. There must be, in Carol Gillian's phrase, a different voice, a voice of empathy, sympathy, and attachment, the values that make us human. If we are to create a society in which justice has a human face. See, tyranny and oppression cannot destroy humanity. Moral courage can sometimes be found on the opposing side. See, the fact that the Torah itself tells the story this way, that salvation began with midwives and Pharaoh's daughter, who despite the fact that they were on the other political side of this become allies, has enormous implications. It means that when it comes to people, We must never overgeneralize or stereotype. The Egyptians were not all evil because even from Pharaoh himself, a heroine was born, which means the police are not all evil. The whole government is not evil. Whoever the media or the news is telling you is evil, don't buy it. Allyship can come for the most unlikely places. This is God at work. This also means we must ourselves recognize virtue wherever we find it, even among our enemies. So how does Jesus fit into all of this? I think it's an important question for us as followers of Jesus to ask, how does Jesus fit into this, into this story, into the story or the narrative of being an ally? Who is the one who stood in front of the woman caught in adultery facing an unjust trial of all men and said, with all his male rabbinic authority, let he without sin cast the first stone? It was Christ, our ally. Who is it who stood in front of the crippled man who finally, and finally healed him when he couldn't 
place himself into the healing pool when the water was stirred because he said, I need help. And every time I try to get into the pool to get ahead, to get help, someone with more ability beats me to it. Who finally healed this man? It was Christ, our ally. Who was the one who stood in front of Pilate, the mob, and our cross, the one that should belong to us for our sin and our rebellion to God and said, it is finished. It was Christ, our ally. So before we even think of becoming an ally for justice, which is so needed in our world right now, we first need to face the reality that we ourselves need an ally. And that ally is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray that the, that the imagination of the scriptures would form our minds and our hearts right now. I pray that the power of God to do that. I pray the spirit of God, the spirit of the living God, would you do that in our church? May we be shaped by the narrative of the scriptures, by the justice that you bring, by the way that you want us to be involved in justice, the way that you want us to, 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 to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with you, God. Please, Lord, deliver us from silly rhetoric that takes the side and demonizes the other side. May we see the world in the way that you see the world. May you bring salvation and justice in unlikely of places during the midst of one of the darkest periods in our young history. Maybe those that are listening that are in 20s or 30s, most of them. In our lifetime, this is the, for them, this is the, probably the darkest it's been. Would you bring hope through it, deliverance through it, just like Moses on the River Nile? Would you save us through this, this dark season as we go through it? Bring deliverance. Make us partners of you in bringing true, biblical, rightly ordered, compassionate justice. And may we first be recipients of that through your blood shed on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.